This is Victoria of TheUnleashedHeart.com, and you're listening to Grieving Voices, a podcast for hurting hearts who desire to be heard, or anyone who wants to learn how to better support loved ones experiencing loss. As a 30-plus year griever and advanced grief recovery method specialist, I know how badly the conversation around grief needs to change. Through this podcast, I aim to educate grievers and non-grievers alike, spread hope, and inspire compassion toward those hurting. Lastly, by providing my heart with ears and this platform, grievers have the opportunity to share their wisdom and stories of loss and resiliency. How about we talk about grief like we talk about the weather? Let's get started. Thank you for tuning in to Grieving Voices. Today, my guest is Christian De La Huerta. He has 30 years experience and is a sought-after spiritual teacher, personal transformation coach, and leading voice in the breathwork community. He's traveled the world offering inspiring and transformational retreats combining psychological and spiritual teachings with lasting and life-changing effects. An award-winning, critically acclaimed author, he has spoken at numerous universities and conferences and on the TEDx stage. His new book, Awakening the Soul of Power, has described by multiple Grammy Award winner Gloria Estefan as a balm for the soul of anyone searching for truth and answers to life's difficult questions, and has received a Nautilus Book Award and a Nonfiction Book Award. So thank you so much for being here, and we are going to go deep today. (laughs) Thank you so much, Victoria. Um, I'm so happy to be here with you. I actually really want to start because I know you've done a lot of these podcast episodes, you know, interviews and been on the stage and things like that. But I really want to get to know you as a child, because I think our childhood really shapes our adulthood mm-hmm. because adulthood is childhood reenactments, I say a lot. So I'm interested in learning about you as a child. So would you describe yourself as a child in your life? what it was like for you. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I was, I was born in Cuba and um, so lived in, in a communist regime for the first 10 years of my life. And I'm one, part of a large family. I'm one of nine kids and only 12 years between the oldest and the youngest of my mom was pretty much pregnant the whole time, um, which I can't even imagine, you know, having that many kids. I'm, I'm happy if I don't kill my plants when I travel. Um, but so, you know, so it was, it was a beautiful and challenging in different ways um, childhood. I'm really appreciative of the fact that we grew up without watching TV. We had a TV, but there was nothing worth watching, really. Um, and so we grew up reading, and I'm really grateful for that. Uh, we grew up um, creating, inventing our games and our pastimes and spending a lot of time out, outside. So, you know, when I see some of my kids in my life, you know, just like with their nose to the, to the screen, just lost in there. It's, it saddens me a bit uh, to see that. Um, I was, you know, it was, it was interesting because my parents were involved in counter revolutionary activity. So they were conspiring against um, the revolution or the, the communist revolution. There was this kind of interesting push pull between like an implicit, wanting to be seen and wanting to excel like there was sort of a family message like most of us were like really good students um i think we all were and and then because of their kind of revolutionary activities there was a another message not to be seen too much so so i see that 
that you know I'm, I'm basically introverted um which which means that you know that i that i process internally that i need time off um if i don't have time alone that's when i'm liable to lose my center um and so so it was an interesting childhood i mean surrounded by kids and then having this also introverted streak like looking finding for, for always looking for my own space um and what i think you're 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 your audience might relate to also is that my adolescence, if you're going, going forward a little bit, was one long depression um, with suicidal fantasies. Like, I don't think, I mean, I know I wouldn't have done anything about it, uh, but I did have thoughts about not, not being alive and um, sort of like that escape fantasy. And, and what's important for, for your audience, because I know, the, I know the depth of the work that you do, is that flash forward now, um, no matter what the details or the circumstances are in my life, whether a relationship works out or it doesn't, whether um, a project succeeds or it fails in quotes, um, I never, ever, ever question my sense of self. My, my, my level of self-love, self-acceptance are established and unshakable. And so that I know that, that we can all break out of that stuff. You know, the, the traumatic, the difficult stuff, um, the self-esteem stuff from, from childhood, that all, all that stuff can be healed and transcended. In your TED Talk, you spoke a lot about this fight, flight, or freeze. And would you express that that was your adolescence? Like, was it like a, like a lack of stability or security? Like, what was the, what was the grief of, mm-hmm. of, of your experience then? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I was in that, maybe, no, I don't know that I would say that I was in the fight, flight, or freeze mode. I think I was just numbed out. And, and for me, it was an existential struggle. You know, I, I knew at a young age that I was gay. And I was raised in a very Catholic, very Catholic environment. Mm-hmm. So trying to reconcile, um, you know, those two parts of who I am, there was a part of me that that's always had a spiritual sense a uh, sense of mission, sense of, of helping you know, humanity, making a difference in other people's lives, of serving the sacred as I've interpreted that in different points in my life. Um, so there was this huge part of me and then this other part of me that was told by the religion in which I was raised that I was um, you know, an, abomin- an abomination in the eyes of God, that I was going to burn in hell for eternity. So that was the struggle, which, you know, looking back on it, I'm grateful for that now for, for several reasons. Uh, but one of the reasons is that it, it forced me to struggle with those tough existential questions of, you know, who am I? What am I here for? What's life about? Um, what, you know, why do we do the things we do um, at, a, at a younger age that most of us have to struggle with? Um, and so for that, I'm, I'm grateful. And it, it also gave me an ability and an ability to deeply empathize with another person's pain, their, their, their grief. You know, the details might be different, but the experience is, is similar for most of us. So, so I'm grateful for all of that. Were you accepted by your loved ones? Eventually, yes. I mean, my, my siblings immediately. My parents, you know, it took a, a little bit longer. Um, for to you know for for my mom to to get to the place of I could just want my kids to be happy, um, which you know which that foundation was always there. So that I know, I know that I'm blessed in that area that, that many other people don't have. 
which was that I, I knew that the love was there and no matter what, even though I, I spent years, you know, with, with that deep, dark secret, not telling them, but once I finally did come out to them, um, you know, it's, it, it took some navigating for sure. Um, and, and my father was a psychiatrist. So there were other layers around that of, you know, his philosophy about that. But, but I knew that deep down inside the love was there always. Can I ask for those listening um, who might get a sense that their child may be gay or be struggling with their sexual identity. What is one piece of advice that you would give them? Is it to confront it and just start the conversation or allow the child to express it in their own time? You know, it's hard to make a blanket um, choice about that or suggestion about that. I think it depends my inclination, my initial inclination would be to let the, let it come out in the child. But I've also heard stories where the father, the father or the mother just opening up the space and, and you know, creating a, an environment which in which the kid feels safe and, and you know, kind of setting them up to, to be able to come out to them. That, that's also very helpful. Here, here's the thing that, that I think will be helpful, because I know that the, the reason that all of us, you know, but especially parents, you know, struggle with that. How can I accept this in my child uh, when my religion may be telling me that this is wrong or that it's sinful or whatever? So it's going to take work, right? It's going to, it's for me, it was, it took years to get to that point of self-accepting and reconciling my sexuality and my spirituality. But, but here's what's really key is that a lot, there's about six, and I'm going to go immediately to the majority religion in, 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 in this country um, and the West, you know, which is Christianity. There are basically six uh, biblical texts that are interpreted, and I would say misinterpreted, to condemn homosexuality. And the thing to remember about, about those is that they've been taken out of their cultural and historical context, and, and they're very selectively interpreted. What, what allowed me to get through this and to heal this in myself is that I started doing a lot of research and discovered and realized that before the patriarchal times and cultures and religions, people that we today would call gay or lesbian or LGBT or Q or whatever, um, were not only spiritually inclined, but were actually honored, respected, in some cases revered, for the roles of spiritual service and spiritual leadership uh, that they played all over the world. Uh, so my first book was called Coming Out Spiritually um, and dives deeply into that because there are examples of that all over the world in all inhabited continent. And, and so that begins like once we're able to, to reconcile that for ourselves as parents, then it becomes easier. To, to arrive at that point is like, you know, we're like, all right, well, I don't know about this stuff and where these teachings come from, but I know the love I have for my child, no matter what. And, and, and I help them to arrive to a place of, of inner peace with that. Yeah. Isn't that the goal just to find inner peace with it on both sides, right? Yes. Yes. It's better than creating, destroying the bridge between that relationship. There's ripple effects in that for sure. Oh my God. And it's so unnecessary. And so unnecessary. And by the way, it's important to remember too that because the more I think about this, the more that I realize that homophobia and misogyny 
are two sides of the same coin. And, and the more that I think about it, I think misogyny is really the deeper one. Because if you look at any culture, any religion that persecutes homosexuality or, or you know, LGBTQ people, 100% correlation, they are the same ones where women do not have equal status. And, and so, you know, taking one of those, you know, what are called the holy texts of terrors, the, those six biblical injun- injunctions that are used to condemn same-sex behavior, one of them is like, you know, you, 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 you should not lie with a man as you do with a woman. But what about two women together? You know, that, that doesn't even come up. And why is that? Because at that time, in that culture, you know, women weren't even human. Women were property. And, and so am I going to base my, my choices about what's right and what's wrong um, on stuff that was written you know, thousands of years ago that was translated and retranslated and mistranslated. Stuff was taken out. Stuff was put into those, those, those you know, sacred texts that were written by humans. And so I'm personally not. You know, and, and even if we, if we flash forward to today, you know, for you know, like the, many examples of homophobic uh, straight men, you tell them, oh, two women, or you show them a, a, a movie with two women, it's like, ooh, ooh, you know, I, want, I, want, I want some of that. But how different two men together? It's like, whoa, you know, either the, either the you got to shoot them, you got to kill them, get rid of them, um, or the yuck factor comes up. So why is that? And I think it's because of two women together were not a threat to the status quo, right? Because again, they, they, they weren't seen to hold the same kind of amount of power in the world and still don't, uh, which connects to the book that, that, you know, that I just published um, last year. Whereas two men in their mind, I think they believe that one of them is willingly forfeiting, giving up their superior male status. And that is a threat to the status quo. Do you think that if men, just straight men in general, Mm -hmm. got more in touch with their femininity, their feminine side, you know, the yin and yang, equally balanced. Do you think that would change things of in course. that regard? Of course it would. And, 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 you know, because we're part of the cosmos. The cosmos is equally balanced between masculine and feminine energies. So that means that those masculine and feminine energies course through every one of us, no matter what kind of body we're in. And for some reason, you know, at the rise of the patriarchy, the, the feminine was made, was turned into weakness, into something less than. And whereas, whereas you know, the, from my perspective, if you want to talk strength and power and resilience and courage, let's talk about the power of, of creation that, that lies in a female body. And to lighten things up a little bit, you know, I read about an interview of um, Betty White, who passed not long ago, the one and only inimitable uh, Betty White. But apparently she was in one of those group interviews and somebody said something about having balls. And she goes, wait a minute. I, I don't know where we got this connection between having balls and, and courage and strength and strength. You thump those little things and the guy collapses, bends over in pain. You want to talk uh, courage and strength? Let's talk vaginas. Those things take a pounding. <laughs> you know, I just yesterday, my... So I, you actually mentioned her in your TED talk, Joan of Arc. And yeah. so my daughter, she's going to be confirmed. We, 
I, I'm, I'm actually a convert uh, to Catholicism, but I, you know, I struggled spiritually and religiously for many years because my dad died when I was a child and I was sexually assaulted and blah, 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 blah. So I wrote off God. I was angry at God and I didn't, you know, that relationship, I cut it off. And so I struggled for a long time, but I found something I could set a foundation of faith in and it's still evolving. It's always going to evolve. And I think that's where we kind of get stuck in our thought process. And then in our, we get stuck in our ways. Like, this is how it is. This is how it's always going to be. But I feel like I'm more spiritual now than I would say I'm religious, you know, mm. and that took a long time to get there. But anyway, sure, my daughter, sure. my daughter chose Joan of Arc though, as her patron saint. So anyway, I just, I, I said her. to her, I said to her yesterday, she has to do this paper on her. And I just said, you know, well, you know, she's, she's like, she's a badass. She, I don't know how, how I all described her, but I did say she has lady balls, <laughs> that she had lady balls, you know? That's and hilarious. so when you mentioned that, it's like, my gosh, my language, right? Like it is, it is. And so this is my question because, and I wasn't going to go here, but I, I, I feel like it's, it's just coming up. So currently there's this, all this talk about gender neutral clothing. And I don't, I haven't even seen the story. I, it was just shared with me. And, and my thought is, is let the kids wear what they want to wear. Just let them wear what they want to wear. Let them express themselves. You know, here it's us as parents and society that places these places, children in a box. Well, let's just give them gender neutral because they look male and they, they see male. So let's just put blue clothes on them. But as adults, we wear all kinds of colors. I'm wearing blue today. Does that make me male? You know what I mean? Like, it's not a big deal as adults. It's ridiculous. Why do we make it a big deal? As, I think we, as a society, we make mountains out of molehills where there doesn't need to be. Just compassion and kindness and free freedom of expression, right? Yeah, I have a yeah. picture of my child. She, My youngest, a girl, she... I don't know. One time it's one of my favorite pictures, but she was dressed literally like a clown, like just mismatched and stripes and solids and all, all, all kinds of it. And she looked silly, ridiculous. And she had like a wellness check that day. I let her dress like that. I don't care. You know, like what, you know, people get so afraid of what it, what it says about them, you know? So I think that's, yeah. Anyway. That's my spiel. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> well, I think I think you're absolutely right. It's it's ridiculous and tragic how much power we give away to others and and how much weight we give to what other people think. How many choices we make based on what we think they think. Right? So it's it's all made up in our minds and and based on whether other people are going to like it or not. And to me it goes back to to self-esteem. Right? The stronger our sense of self the, the, the deeper that our, our level of self-acceptance, the less and less and less that we care what anybody else thinks. Um, and, and we get to that place of freedom, which I think is what we all, we're all longing for, freedom just to be who we are, wherever we are. Because we spend so much time like with, you know, with masks and, and being this way at work and this other way with, with our friends, this other way with our family, this other way with, with our lovers. It's exhausting. You know, so right. What if we were just able to to be who we are, 
right? Of course, selectively and, and consciously and intelligently, we don't have to, to share every part of who we are with everybody in our lives. Um, but it's such a relief. We spend so much energy um, worried about what other people think and then presenting ourselves in a way that we think they're going to like. It's exhausting. Absolutely. You mentioned in your TED talk too, um, which I'll put that in the show notes, the link to that. But you mentioned you were speaking the language of grief recovery when you were talking about, and are you familiar with grief recovery method at all? Not the method method specifically. My degree's in psychology. So, Mm -hmm. and from personal experience, I've also dealt with, you know, with grief, but I don't know that particular methodology, grief recovery. recovery. Okay. Well, it's based on the grief recovery handbook. But you were talking about, particularly, there was a, a spot where you're talking about drugs and alcohol and shopping and gambling, like all these ways that we cope and to distract ourselves from what we're feeling. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you speak in the language of grief recovery because in grief recovery, we call those STIRBs, short term energy relieving behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so, as a teenager, when you were going through all of this struggle with self acceptance and, you know, this, tug and what were some of the ways you were coping with that yeah you know that's that's a a good great conversation too because we we all do that right we like most of us i'm not going to say all most of us like have become really adept at running away from numbing out our emotions um so and and there's so many creative ways in which we do that right that we numb out and and not to not feel uh, to not remember whether it's substances, drugs, alcohol, food, um, whether it's um, behaviors, exercise, uh, social media, you know, shopping, uh, work, workaholism. Yeah. Yeah. And not that there's anything intrinsically wrong with any of those. It's how we do it, how we, a relationship to all those things, TV. And, you know, all of them have potential to be, have good or negative effects, not so good effects. I think for me, I definitely hit it my books. And, and I love, you know, the, the fantasies, science fiction. It was, it was easy for me to just get lost in these worlds, whether it was, you know, Lord of the Rings or the Foundation uh, series or so many other series like that, that I could just go get lost in book after, after book after book. Um, Are you a Pisces? No, I'm a Gemini. My son's a Gemini, but just how you're describing getting lost in the fantasy. I'm like, okay, that's, that's like me. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's understandable. It's, it's easier to go through, you know, to not want to feel stuff that wasn't pleasant or to remember stuff that, you know, may not have been a great experience. So it's understandable that we want to run away from that stuff, but the price we pay, the reason that it's not an effective strategy, as you know, is that that stuff doesn't go away just because we don't want to deal with that. So, so we stuff it and we stuff our emotions. And, you know, what used to be spiritual teaching that everything is energy. Now we know from quantum physics that everything is energy. And we know that energy cannot be destroyed. And by everything, I mean, everything, like this chair I'm sitting on, the table, the computer, the body, the emotion, even though it might feel solid, it's just energy, it's just vibration. And so whenever we stuff those emotions, whenever we numb out and run away from them, it doesn't go away. It, it, gets, it, it gets lodged in the tissues of the body. And after years and decades of doing that, we walk around with layers upon layers upon even more layers of repressed emotional crap 
and unhealed past situations. And here we are trying to have a relationship in the present moment. And all of it is getting filtered through that lifetime of of unhealed trauma and repressed emotions. Like, yikes, how any relationship can work is it boggles my mind because we haven't been taught how to hold them, how to approach them. Um, And we certainly haven't been taught how to clear ourselves of that cauldron of repressed emotion, because what happens is we suppress, suppress, suppress. And then the next unfortunate one just says something to us the the wrong way and boom, volcanic eruption. Um, And we cause harm to our relationships, sometimes irreparably or suppress, 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 suppress. That energy has to come out and it begins to start seeping out of the body and showing up as physical symptoms, right? Cancer, heart attacks, ulcers. So we've got to get this. We've got to get a relationship to our emotions and accept that they're not weakness. Emotions are not good. They're not bad. They're not strength. They're not weakness. They're just energies coursing through our bodies. We get into trouble with them when we, when we stuff them, because what happens when we stuff sadness, as you know, it congeals, it turns into grief. And when we stuff anger, it turns into rage and we walk around like raging cauldrons. So better to nip it in the bud and learn how to first identify what we're feeling because most of us are clueless about our emotions, including my psychiatrist dad, including myself up until I started doing this conscious work 20 years, 30 years ago. I had no, I, no clue as to what I was feeling. I couldn't tell you what, what I was feeling because I had no idea. And so we can talk about process, you know, like simple techniques to become more emotionally intelligent, to increase our EQ, and, and then learn how to communicate them responsibly, like owning their, our emotions so that nobody can make us feel anything unless there's some little button there that they're triggering. Uh, but it's here, right? So we've got to own that stuff. And then learning how to communicate them responsibly, not not courageously, because it takes courage for sure, responsibly, just not having a tantrum like a two-year-old and, and, and in a way that they can be heard, that they can be received. And so, so level of mastery. So it's the opposite of weakness. It's a level of mastery. I love that. You said so much that we talk about in grief recovery too, just, you know, the implode or explode. That's we, we either implode or we explode. We either suffer from disease and illness and, you know, all these symptoms, these physical symptoms, or we explode and have these disturbs, right? These behaviors mm-hmm. and anger is and anger can be a disturb. I was very angry as a child and I grew up. I was very angry as an adult too. And understandably, so I, I, yeah, I would argue that at the root of grief and sadness and, and fear and anxiety is grief. Like all of those emotions, it just is the embodiment of grief. And I always say too, like grief was our pandemic long before COVID-19 mm, long before. I, I think yeah. so. Your teenage years and growing up, that was just the start of your experience with grief, but there's more to your story and I would like to get there. So you had shared in your information uh, with me that your brother, you had lost your brother when he was 26. You mind sharing that story with us? Yeah, yeah, of course. And and, and I want to say too, that there's, that it's important for us to realize that there is, there is an end to suffering, right? Like there is an end to that, not so much for sadness. Like there's always going to be stuff in, in, in life that's going to be sad. That's going to evoke those emotions. You know, people are going to come. People are going to go. 
crazy traumatic stuff, crisis level stuff is going to happen in the world as we're witnessing you know, right now in a global pandemic, wars, the things that humans do to other humans is just like boggle the mind. So but what, once we get to the level where we can feel our emotions, where, where we are no longer running away from them or numbing them out or stuffing them, where we can just let them course through us, then we can get to that place of freedom where we just allow those energies to course through us and we don't get stuck in them. And, and so, yes, you know, the, the, what happened with my brother um, and my nephew uh, later, it's, it's just stuff that shouldn't happen. You know, my brother was 26 and he drowned in a, in a kind of freaky boat accident, riverboat accident in the Thames in London. And, and I can't even imagine, of course, we're all impacted, but I can't even begin to imagine what it's like for, for a parent to lose a child. I don't have any kids myself. I have many kids in my life, but you know, no, no, none that are mine, so to speak. And then I witnessed that again with my sister. My nephew was also around 26, 27. I think he was 27. Incredible. I mean, both of them really creative and smart. My, my nephew shown because he had these amazing leadership qualities. He, his passion was being a, a DMT. He was a firefighter DMT gave up a scholarship to Harvard because of his grades, because that was what he really wanted to do. And at 27, he, his wife was seven months pregnant with their first child, which they never met. Um, he got this really aggressive form of brain cancer. And within weeks, like four or five weeks, he was gone to everybody's shock. And again, like, how do you, how do, what, what does one do with that? Of course, it's sad. Of course, um, you know, takes the parents years to grieve that stuff. Some of that lingering grief doesn't ever really leave you. We heal it for sure. But there, there are layers of the sadness and the missing, somebody like that. And, and, but I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that the more work that I did on myself, the more that I was able to get to that place of feeling these incredibly sad emotions and not be stuck with them, right? That we can, we can weave it into the fabric of our lives and realize that one thing we know for sure is that life is going to continue throwing curveballs our way, whether it's a global pandemic or a 26-year-old getting brain cancer or, or an unexpected drowning. Like there is not one thing that any of us can do about that. So we can, that can help us add, you know, the, to the feeling of, of grief and sadness. It can add a layer of feeling helpless. And even some people feel victimized by life. Like, you know, I got such a horrible, you know, deck of cards this lifetime. And, and if only this hadn't happened or that had happened, if I had only been born in a different place, a different time, a different culture, if only, you know, the, the system was set up differently. As long as we're doing that, if only, uh, and feeling victimized by life, we're giving our power away. And, and sometimes even to the perpetrators, as you know, as long as we're holding them responsible for our emotions, for our state of being, and it's not to minimize any of that or to excuse anything. It's if we want to be free, we've got to get to that place of healing and acceptance. And, and one thing that helps to reframe that is knowing that no matter what happens going forward, no, no matter what new curveballs come our way, no matter what happened in the past, we always, always get to choose how we show up in response. And that element of choice, just remembering that and knowing that, it's liberating and it's empowering. 
And I just had a thought too. It when you are someone who isn't there yet in their heart and in their mind, because forgiveness too can be very, very difficult for people. Again, like you said, it always comes down to choice. You can you can have grief in the back seat, but you can because it's going to follow you, right? You take you everywhere you go, but you have a choice if you're going to continue to look in the rearview mirror at it, That's or right. you can look forward. But what if, what if you're stuck looking at the rear view mirror? I think that's where finding support in someone who is a little further along than you, who maybe is an example of, of where you'd like to be in your life. So when you were going through these losses, had you already been at this place in your life with the breath work and on your spiritual journey and things like that? Like, had you, cause we never fully arrive, right. But had you already started in the, in the case of my brother's death, it was synchronous. It's right around that time is when I did breathwork for the first time and, where, and when I started to, to reclaim my spirituality, right? Because like many people, and like you were referring to, I threw the, the baby out with a baptismal water. I didn't know that there was a difference between religion and spirituality. Um, and I didn't know that spirituality is just an inherent part of who we are. That is just as ludicrous for you know for me to have tried to repress and reject, and 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 run away from my sexuality as as it was to ignore it and repress it in, 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 with my spirituality. It's just part of who we are as humans. So yeah, I did have much better tools um, in in those situations. And I want to go back to something. I want to highlight something you just said, which I think is really important because we just hit on the two biggest hurdles on the on the on the journey to to freedom and to personal empowerment one is that that victimization you know poor me woe is me relationship to life um the other one that you mentioned is forgiveness because we know we've heard this we've heard that forgiveness is really for us but how do we forgive you know the what feels unforgivable how do we do that because if we think about it as long as we're holding someone Right, looking in that rearview mirror, where we're holding somebody over the fire for what they did or failed to do, our hand is also getting burnt. Our hand is in the fire. So, so it it helps us to understand the the, the necessity for forgiveness. Another way to to convey that visual, if you think of the heart center, not the organ, the the chakra, the energy center, it it opens and closes in the same way that like the shutter of a camera or the iris of the eye. If I shut my heart to my sexual abuser or to my father who left or to mom who did, who was emotionally abusive or to the teacher or the minister or society or sexism or misogyny or racism or homophobia, I can't close it selectively just to that or, or to the boss who fired me or the ex who cheated on me, right? We, I can't close it just to them. If I close it, I close it, right? So it's not even about them because in closing it, we're giving our power away again. So this is between me and my heart. This is between my heart and love, between my heart and life. And so how do we do that? How do we even begin to forgive the unforgivable? And this is something that I picked up along the way from a teacher that begins to open the door to the possibility of forgiveness. And it's forgive, two syllables, flip them around, give for. What we do when we forgive, we're giving others and ourselves, which is often even more difficult to do. We're giving them the space to be human, to make mistakes, to fall short of the mark, to to make a royal mess of things, like to really F things up. 
Um, and and it's, it's, it's getting off the self-righteous stance of the ego. Like we don't have time to dive into what the ego construct is here, but it's a really important one to understand what the ego is. I spent the first quarter of the book, maybe even the third talking about the ego mind and, and how it keeps us in a self-made prison of, of fear and lack and limitation and self-doubt and a reactivity and, and a victim and defense victim mindset and defensiveness. So really, really important. If we want to be free, if we want to step into our power, if we want to have relationships that have a chance of working, that we understand them, how the ego is and how it works so that we can let ourselves out of its, out of, out of its self-made prison because nobody else can. So the ego, one of the aspects of it is it's very self-righteous. Like it knows it went to law school and appoints itself a judge, jury, prosecutor. It knows exactly what the other person did that was wrong, what the punishment should be, and delivers the punishment. So forgiving means getting off, like stepping off that self-righteous stance. I know I'm right. I would never do anything like, right? Because that closes the heart. And again, I'll highlight it again. It's not about making it okay, about denying what happened, about rationalizing it. It's not about any of that. It's not about minimizing or making okay whatever they did or didn't do, but it's not about them. This is about us and how do we free ourselves from that? And so when we forgive, we, we, make, we give the other and ourselves the room to make all those mistakes, to, to, fall, to get off that self-righteous stance and say, maybe, right? All it takes is that question mark, maybe. I can't see it. I cannot even begin to imagine that I would ever do that, but maybe, if I had been raised in their situation with their parents, their culture, um, their time, uh, in whatever way their parents raised them and their parents before them raised them, who knows what was going on in the brain biochemistry? Who, know what ha- who knows what happened in their own pasts? Who know what traumas they had? Because we know trauma is the gift that keeps on giving, especially in sexual abuse and that kind of stuff. And Right. And again, not minimizing and not making it okay. We don't have to hang out with them. We don't have to be friends with them. We don't have to ever see them again. But that question mark is like, maybe, maybe I, I might have done that. I might have, I might have done that. And here's like an extreme way to be able to do that. A terrorist. Like it's really hard for us to otherize them because we can't imagine. Like anybody listening to this for sure, watching this. Uh, cannot have woods is not about to wrap their bodies in, in in explosives and walk into a crowded mall and detonate ourselves. So it's really difficult for us to understand understand that it's easy to say I would never do that. And have we ever terrorized others emotionally? Mm. Have we ever terrorized ourselves emotionally? And that I know every single one of us has done. So we have an inner terrorist inside me, inside of each one of us. The details are different, but we have that potential. So it's, again, not to make it okay, not to minimize it. It it just begins to soften that harsh uh, separation of, I would never do that because that's what makes forgiveness difficult. Like, right, we soften that, then it begins to, to free ourselves from carrying that weight and being stuck in the past. I can bring a visual to this that can lighten things up (laughs) because when you were talking about emotions and how like what came up for me is like, yeah, we're just all walking around a little bit emotionally constipated some more than others. Right. And I, when you were saying how we terrorize others emotionally, it's like, if we think of that emotional constipation, right, it's gotta go somewhere. So either it's gonna, we're just gonna have, we're gonna let it come out of us, or we're going to just throw it at people. Right. 
Yes. You know, it's so funny because I call, <laughs> I call breath work spiritual draino. Oh, cool. Yes. Emotional and spiritual draino. We get rid of all that crap that we've been carrying inside of us um, quickly and it works fast. Well, and that's it a- feels so profoundly at so many levels. It's just a really amazing and, and for lack of another word, miraculous. That's a great segue. So I do want to talk about that. What is, I had a personal experience, a friend of mine, she does Kundalini yoga and she's um, in a training right now to become a practitioner in that, but she does breath work. She has a breath work practice every day. And she walked me through this breath work practice. It was about 30 minutes, but I tell you what, I learned the power of our breath in that one session that blew my mind. I felt I'm a Reiki master, but I had, my hands were vibrating to the extent of nothing in comparison. Like my hands are starting to tingle, just thinking about it. (laughs) I know. I felt so alive, like the most alive that I had felt in a long time after experiencing that. It was so powerful for me. Can you give our listeners something that they can do today if they are in a moment of panic, fight, flight, or freeze, grief, whatever they're experiencing right now, can you share some, a, a technique with them? Of course. And, you know, breathwork is a, re- it's a really broad umbrella. There's a lot of breathing practices, a lot of breathing techniques, yoga practice, yogic practices, pranayama, um, it's called in, in that yoga tradition, you know, whether it's kundalini yoga or any other kind of yoga. And, and so the breath is at the core of all those practices mm-hmm. and at the core of every meditation practice, at the core of every spiritual tradition. And so the particular breath work that I do, it's longer. It's about an hour, an hour and a half. There's different modalities. It's, it's, yeah, so you can use breathing techniques for different purposes. You, if, you're, if you're stressed out, if you're stuck in traffic, if you're like stressed out or, or nervous about right before a difficult conversation or an important meeting, you can do take slow, deep breaths to calm yourself down. And the, the body has to slow down. Like there's swamis in India that have that much control over their body. They can tell their hearts to slow down and they do, you know, they can, some of them can mimic states that are really, really hard to, to distinguish from death. They can slow down the body that much. Most of us are not going to be able to, aren't there. And I'm probably not going to learn how to do that kind of stuff, but anybody can slow down the breath. Anyone can slow down the breath. When we do that, the heart has no choice. The heart has to slow down. And, and when the heart slows down, the nervous system begins to quiet down. The body begins to relax, right? So it's, it's, it's slowing down the breath. It's like it's your best friend, your most effective practice. There are also breathing techniques that you can use, like in place of the, of the afternoon slump, you know, a cup of coffee. You know, there's the faster, more energizing, more focusing practices, the type of breathwork that I do, it's, it's a different, it's more of a, to me, I, it's part of my psycho-spiritual ther- you know, approach uh, to healing. I was on a trip. My father was a psychiatrist, as I said, my, my degrees in psychology. I was on a track to get a PhD. When I discovered breathwork, this modality that I, that I practice, I jumped tracks. I never went for the PhD because it works so fast and heals so profoundly at so many levels including, by the way, I don't know anything more effective than healing past traumas, including sexual abuse, including, you know, just violent stuff that people have, have experienced that I've worked with over the years and it gets healed. And so not only that, which that would be hard enough to believe, 
but it heals spiritually, mentally, even physically. And yes, you know, even like more than 30 years saying this or talking about this, I know to my mind, it still sounds hard to believe to my logical, more scientific, more skeptical mind, but I can't argue with the results. It works with permanent effect. And, you know, they haven't studied it yet. They're starting to do more research now about what's happening in the body scientifically. But even that, it doesn't explain it to me. Like, like the stuff that happens, because you can also have incredibly ecstatic moments, like moments of oneness, moments of feeling connectedness to, to everyone and everything, to all of creation. And so just from breathing, but here's what ultimately helps me understand the way that I can understand. If you look at any religion, any culture, um, um, some even languages, in, in, in many of them, the same word, one word can mean breath or spirit, depending on the context. So, so for example, from pneuma, from the Greek word pneuma, from which we get pneumonia, that word uh, meant, or it meant soul and lung. From the Latin root spirare, we get both respiration and inspiration or expiration. So that breath-spirit connection is, is available, like I said, in most spiritual traditions and, and even several secular languages. And, and that's what ultimately helps me understand that. It's when we breathe in this conscious, intentional way that the effects of which are undeniable, like you felt your body was, you, you were beginning to notice your body more as vibration. Right? So you popped out of that limited perspective of separateness. It's like, I'm just over here. This is, this is Christian, that's Victoria, which is what the ego is, that artificial you know, sense of, of separate, separateness. And you began to experience yourself beyond the confines of your body as a physical thing. And that, that's what that vibration was. And that we can access not only profound healing, but ecstatic states. Which, by the word, that's what the word ecstasy means, means out of ourselves. And that's what that breathing practices and the breathing practices help us to do so that we can pop beyond the illusion of separation of the ego and, and reconnect with our, you know, our ultimate nature. There was a conversation one time about psychedelics and she's like, you don't need to take a psychedelic to have that experience. You can find that through your breath. And I totally totally agree. Mm-hmm. I actually had written down just before you said it, I wrote the soul is in the gut and grief is in the lungs. Ah. So isn't that just really ironic in a way that the breath connects us to both, <laughs> right? Is part of both essentially. So I'm yeah. curious, is it, was it just breath work? Because, you know, I've dabbled in different healing modalities. I'm currently actually learning biofield tuning which addresses the energy field that's around us, the stuck energy that's outside of us, you know, that because our bodies are a mirror of what's out here stuck Mm -hmm. in this energy field. And that extends five to six feet beyond us. So was it just breath work or have, were you kind of dabbling in a lot of different things and breath work is what's stuck or was it always breath work? And that's just kind of been your thing. I think the combination, I mean, there's so many, tools to help us heal mm-hmm. and, and help free the ones that i include in every single retreat for over 30 years 
um, no matter whether the retreat is on, on conscious relationships and, and having relationships that can actually work, whether it's stepping into our personal power and, and reconciling the, the, the conflicted, ambivalent relationship we have to power and how do we step into power in a way that's not about hierarchy and control and fear and force and domination? Um, how do we do it in a way that's a match for who we are? whether it's about life purpose and what are we really, really doing here and, and how do we stop selling out for that illusion of security of a biweekly paycheck because we sell ourselves so cheaply for that illusion. Um, as many have had to discover the hard way during this pandemic, but no matter what the theme of the retreat, the two constant are the breathwork because I've yet to come across any tool that heals us quickly and as profoundly and in many ways. The other one is understanding the ego. Because it's to me, there's that's step one, understanding the mind and and why we do the things we do and our patterns, why why we get triggered, what while the same behavior would have could have a completely different response in you, and yet it's got me just out of control and got my goat. Um, so why is that? Understanding our patterns, like why do we do the things we do? Why do we attract certain people into our lives? Why do we have certain, why do we recreate patterns and situations? What, why do we keep creating patterns of relationships that sometimes feel like it's the same boring movie? Different actor, different co-lead, but the same crap, same arguments, same patterns. Why is that? Right. So, so again, a lot easier to go through life numbing out and running away from these questions, but then we get stuck in them. There's no way to, we're just going to recreate and recreate and, and keep creating the same stuff. What we're talking about is like having the courage to face our grief, to face our, 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 our memories, to, to do whatever it is that we need to do to heal ourselves and to clear ourselves. That is nothing less than heroic. That's why this you know, book, Awakening the Soul of Power, is is the first of a series of three, which is um, the tide. The series is titled "Calling All Heroes." What does it mean to live heroically in the twenty first century? And so, yes, you know, I honor you for the work that you've done to not only um, heal your past trauma, but to now use that to make a difference in other people's lives. And I honor anybody who has stuck with this conversation this far. It's you know, this stuff is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. This is and speaking of heart, you know, that's courage comes from that root, the same root, core, which in Latin means heart, courage, courage in, 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 in French, big heart. This work takes big heart, big courage, nothing short of heroic. I love that. And Thank you. incredibly rewarding, like freedom, empowerment. Empowerment. Yes, that's huge. I, yes, absolutely. Like you were so, telling me when we were connecting right before we started recording, like this podcast is like best thing you ever did. Mm-hmm. Like, wow. And you're using your own, like, that's what healers do, right? We use our own stuff to bring healing to others from lived experience, not just stuff that we read in, in a book. And we all have access to that. You had actually mentioned that your mother's presence is diminishing slowly. Is, is that, did you, do you mean cognitively? Yes. Okay. And I asked that because a friend of mine mentioned this, you can have cancer and you can have disease and things like that, which is really difficult for the person going through it, right? They, they have to reconcile their life, right? When you're, you're faced with, this is what's happening to me, whether it's, you know, MS or muscular dystrophy or, or any kind of debilitating progressive disease, cancer, or anything like that. 
it's really difficult on the person experiencing. And of course, the family and people watching it happen. But when it's someone that's going through a cognitive decline, they aren't necessarily aware of it. And so that's really more impactful on the family and the loved ones. And that struck me because I hadn't really thought about that. But what do you say? How is that different for loved ones in your, in your experience? You've had both experiences, right? Your, your nephew and now your mother. Yeah. I think this one's even more difficult because mm-hmm. what, I've, what I've realized is that I've been preparing. I've been preparing in, you know, for, the, for the inevitable, which is my mother's passing for years. She's not in good health physically. Like, you know, nine kids take a toll on the body. She's diabetic. She's overweight from that generation that never took care of her bodies, of her body. And, and, and that dealt with everything, like from the perspective of Western medicine, my dad being a doctor too, just medicated it rather than addressing the symptom. I mean, the, the, addressing the symptom rather than addressing the source. And so I never thought for a moment that my, mo- my mom's body would outlive her mind. And so I didn't see that coming. That one I was not prepared for. Caught me off guard. And and it's 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 difficult to experience. Not only to see her and this beautiful, vibrant, brilliant, loving woman to be like a, a shell of who she was, to be caught in in fear, which which it's it's heartbreaking. And 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 there's nothing, nothing that as a family we can do except you know love her and create, you know, like try to, to improve the quality of her life as best we can. And, and, but one thing to connect to everything else we've been talking about, the importance of doing the heroic work of, of self-discovery and, and, and healing ourselves. What I'm beginning to see is that is her undone work. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes when she goes into these places of fear that I, that, you know, she's living or reliving something that we can't see. I'm beginning to feel that as she's recreating, like there's this one, uh, kind of actor that keeps coming back into her 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 moments, uh, and it's 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 a. I'm beginning to realize it's a young woman, like a teenage girl, and my mom calls her all sorts of names, like stuff that she would never say in real life. Like now, it's like unleashed. And so, what I've what I'm beginning to put together is that when she was in high school, there was a, a moment where they were put into they were taken to boarding school in Cuba. My aunt and my sister, and her aunt, I mean. Uh, and her sister, my aunt, and I think she had, she, you know, just piecing together stories. There was a, there was a group of girls, you know, mean, mean girls. They were kind of bullies, and there were rich, the rich girls in the school. And, and I think because she never really worked with, with her feeling, I'm projecting, I'm making it up in my own mind that that a feeling rejected, a feeling unloved because she was put away, were taken away to a boarding school, and then having to deal with this bullying that she never really worked through that. And so now when the filters are, are, are off, it's coming back up. Mm-hmm. And so important for us then to do this kind of work, whether we're using traditional therapy, whether we're using um, breath work, you know, it's really important to do, or, or, or your energy work, whatever, whatever it is that we're guided to do, to, to have that courage to, to clear, uh, to face and clear our inner demons. I just got chills as I heard you talking about that because it's like the same, it's almost like reliving a nightmare over and over and over that you can't just push stop on. I know. To me, that's hell. She's stuck in a hell. Yeah. 
weaving it back to the religion, it's it's you know it's like it's tragic to me that in her end, the end of her life, that the religion to which she devoted her entire life is not a source of love and support and support and inner peace. That because of of the teachings about hell, which you know I personally don't believe like there's a physical place that you go to when you die. I don't believe in a punitive uh, micromanaging deity. But that, like, what did my mother ever do to fear that she might go to hell? Like, what? It's, it's nothing that she could have ever done. And it, to me, I find that tragic, that that fear was put into her head, which to me is not even real. I had a medium expressed to me once. Um, it was a teenager experience, spirits that had come through. And she just, her experience was that what she's learned through her work was that it's, even someone who's done not great things or good things, you know, good deeds, um, who have maybe done some bad things, right? It's, they're going through school. They're just, they're going through school and they're having to learn these lessons and they're kind of in school until they can graduate, I suppose, in a way to, to be with the good spirits. <laughs> I don't know how to explain that, you know, but that's kind of how she said it, how, you know, because the mother was so worried that he, because he died by suicide, she was so worried that he was in hell. Mm. And that brought so much peace to her. But, you know, how the son explained, he's like, no, I'm in school. I'm having to learn these lessons that I never was open to learning on the physical yeah. plane. Yeah. And I just yeah. thought that was beautiful. I think it is beautiful and very, and very liberating. And, and to me, you know, from my current perspective, heaven and hell are not places that we go to after we die. I think they're states of being heaven and hell can be right here right now. Mm, it's not the and, truth. Yeah. And, and I th- it's a state of mind. And, and I think that even if we're going to, you know, stick with a Christian um, frame of belief, philosophy, mythology, whatever you want to call it, teachings, Jesus said, you know, these and greater things you'll do. And, and, and so, that comes from that state of mind which he had accessed and to which he never claimed exclusivity. He, ne- he never really did. Yeah, and I think there's just so much we don't know that we'll never know. Yeah. And even when it comes to healing, to that forgiveness piece that we talked about earlier and for, you know, trauma and stuff, it's, or we feel like we are a victim in our own stories. We just, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. If I want to learn this method of breathwork, especially as a griever, where do I go to learn that? I mean, if anybody's interested, they can email me or, you know, just go to my website, soulfulpower.com. And I can either try to help them find somebody local where they can do it. There's some people that do it virtually now. I do it virtually very selectively because it's really powerful. The, the, the modality that I teach is very powerful. And, and you never know what's underneath the surface of somebody's psyche, what's going what's gonna to come up. And as you know, so many of us have memories that we suppressed. So like in, in person and in, in live, I have no hesitation. Like I know that I can handle anything that comes up. And I've had some really traumatic stuff come up for people. Virtually, not so much, right? There's, because there's my, what, I, what I'm able to do to support, intervene, uh, to, to hold space for them is limited, by and all they have to do is click and then there's nothing i can do mm. uh, to help uh, so i do it only with people that you know who've come to my retreats people i know 
people that, that are part of my year-long coaching program. And not, I don't even start with breathwork. That's only like halfway through once I get a, a sense of who's in the group and what kind of stuff they're dealing with. Or if it's somebody maybe who has a support system. So sometimes therapists refer people to me. Therapists, you know, we're, we're living with a client for some time and they're plateaued, they're stuck, they're stagnant. Even one breathwork session can, can change your life. It did for me. My first session. I knew that I'd never be the same, and I wasn't. And I knew that I had to do it again. I didn't care where I had to go, what it cost, and I knew that I had to make it available to others. Um, it was just the most amazing thing that, 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 that I've ever experienced. And by the way, you mentioned psychedelics. Um, in a different like branch of breathwork, um, which is called holotropic, so more, it's longer. You do it for like three, four hours. Uh, kind of very similar technique, but longer. Um, and there are other differences, but the founder of that modality, um, Stan Groff, was a, a psychiatrist from the Czech Republic. When he was over there, he was researching LSD. And what he realized, you know, once he came to the States, he couldn't, you know, continue that research. But somewhere along the way, he discovered, because one, once people attain certain levels of, of being, through the chemical substances or the sacred plant medicine that so many people are, are working with these days, the breath, that kind of breathing pattern sometimes gets triggered automatically, spontaneously. And so he realized by just using the breath, you can access those same levels of non-ordinary beings, uh, states of being. So, yeah. And I, and I hear that constantly from people who come to breathe with me. It's like, yeah, I got to the same place that I did with on an ayahuasca journey or, or whatever, mushrooms, whatever they, they were doing. I got to that same place, that same ability to, to perceive myself from, from a different perspective. And, and that sense of oneness, of connecting with all of it. Because here, here's a great metaphor for that, for the ego. It goes back to the ego, right? If, if you think of the ego as a baseball, you know, it's a part of who we are that's a very limited experience of who we are. It's like a tiny, tiny, tiny part of who we are. Yet we think it's all of who we are. Um, and we make really important consequential choices in our lives from its very limited, small, and always fear-based perspective. Once who we are, right? So imagine the ego in the center of a stadium, that's the, the baseball in the center of a stadium, that's the ego. Who we are is actually the stadium. And we've allowed this tiny, tiny part of us to think and, and to make choices from its, from its small perspective. So part of what happens in breath work and with sacred plant medicine work is, you know, we experience ourselves. We pop out of the, the false limitation of the ego, that false sense of separation, and we reconnect with our essence, with our interconnectedness, with everything, with all of it. I was just hanging on your every word there. <laughs> And it's accessible to all of us. Like it's our breath. It's yes. just in the beginning. We, and you can be taught how to do it yourself in the beginning. That's the first five, 10 uh, sessions. It's, it's important to do it with somebody who knows what they're doing. Somebody who's been trained and can hold space. And, and so that the ego can feel safe enough to release of all the stuff that's been suppressing and allow it to come up to consciousness. And, and Carl Jung, by the way, the psychologist said that the process of enlightenment is making the unconscious conscious and breathwork is really speeds up that process. I love it. Love this conversation. And, and we could go so many other directions too, but <laughs> I, I don't, I want to be respectful of your time, but is there, is there anything else that you would like to share that you didn't get a chance to address? Well, I just give a, a, a brief overview about the book um, on empowerment. 
Because as I started to say, most of us have an ambivalent, conflicted relationship to power. Um, we, we, part of us wants it, part of us is afraid of it. And, and I think what we fear, the more that I work with people around this issue, what we fear is that if we really stepped into our power, if we really stepped into all of who we are, that other people wouldn't be able to handle it and that we might end up rejected and alone. And who wants that? We also fear that we might abuse it. And no wonder, like how many abuses of power have you and I experienced and have all of us experienced? Like all we got to do is turn on the news any day, any given day to witness <clears throat> at least one abuse of power. So, and then on top of that, we've been, it's been ingrained in us that power is bad, that power is negative, you know, with quotes like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Who wants to be corrupted? But what they didn't tell us is that Lord Acton, who said those words, was speaking specifically about political power, not personal power. And so add to that mix what we were talking about, the emotions. We've turned the emotions into weakness. You know, we, we hate conflict. We avoid confrontation. And so what happens when you put all that together, we, we end up giving our power away, our power that nobody can give to us. Nobody can take away. We are the only ones who can give it away. And, and the sad part, the, the tragic part, is that we give it away for the lamest of reasons. Like we say yes, when inside we really feel no. Inside it's really not okay with us. But in order to maintain that illusion of peace, to not rock the boat too much, we override our, our, our desires, our preferences, our dreams. Um, and we say yes, when inside we feel no. We stuff ourselves into tiny little packages uh, so that the, you know, that it's not going to rock any, anybody's boat. Uh, so we limit ourselves, we play small for an illusion of security, for a false sense of acceptance. And for crumbs, we settle for morsels of pseudo-love. So it's not a good strategy. It's not a really good strategy in life. And so what the, this book walks the reader through in, in, in a very doable way. I know how crazy, busy, and overscheduled everybody is. So I've designed the book in, in, with very readable, doable, short chapters uh, with power practices. You have to rush through the book one chapter a week. Do the practices because those practices are designed to integrate and apply the teachings to our lives so they don't stay at the level of information. We don't need more information. We've got information overload. What we need is transformation. And that only comes from taking on the stuff and really living it. Um, and so, so the, if they will do that, it'll begin to transform the relationship to power and, and begin to to discover ways that we can step into and express our power in the way in the in, a, in the way in the world in a way that's not about fear hierarchy force control domination that, that kind of power that that requires that we step on somebody push them down in order for us to feel powerful there's a different way to do this recently there's so much so many synchronicities in what you say because just the other day i shared a quote on my social media about it was in a podcasting email of all things. And it just, it hit me. It's, it stuck out. So I created a quote for it. Knowledge isn't power. It's the application of knowledge Mm. that gives you power. Exactly. Right. So it's the application of the knowledge. And that's just what came to my mind as I was hearing you sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great quote for sure. Yeah. So where can people reach you? I know you have your website. Just share all the things. 
Um, yeah, I think the best way to reach me, well, the book is available anywhere mm-hmm. where books are sold. You can get it on, at your local bookstore. You can order it there if you want to support them. Um, you can also get it on Amazon. In terms of reaching me, probably the best way is my, my website, soulfulpower.com. And by any, for anybody who, of your audience who signs up, goes to soulfulpower.com and gets to my email list. And we all know how easy it is to click unsubscribe down the road if it doesn't work for you. And I'm not going to take it personally. Um, that's one of the benefits of doing this kind of self-love mm-hmm. and self-acceptance work is like, you know, you don't take stuff personally anymore. And so anybody who signs up for my email list will send them a, a sample chapter from the book. And it's one that talks about what it means to live heroically in the 21st century. We'll share some of the power practices we were talking about and a guided meditation. And it's, it's on, on trust that I created last year or the year before in the midst of the pandemic. And so how do we find a place of, of inner peace and trust? How do we become that eye of the storm in, in a world, in, in a time of chaos and fear and uncertainty? How do we move into trust? Mm. It's a big word. Trust, right? It's a big word. Thank you so much for this conversation today. I could talk even longer about energy and all of that, more about the ego, maybe around two. Maybe around two. Yeah, it's it's clear that you and I would not run out of stuff to talk about. Never. No, I don't think so either. Maybe after I get a chance to read your book. (laughs) That sounds good. good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show and for having the show. And remember, when you unleash your heart, you unleash your life. Much love. From my heart to yours, thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please share it, because sharing is caring. And until next time, give and share compassion by being a heart with ears. And if you're hurting, know that what you're feeling is normal and natural. Much love, my friend.